This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. David Howe is an anthropologist slash archaeologist. He was introduced to me by a good friend, Corey Hawke, who's the organic archer on Instagram. And uh, what David specializes in is ethnosynology. And that's his handle, essentially, on Instagram. And if you read his profile, it says, I study ancient humans and their dogs. And so I wanted to have a conversation with him, specifically in light of Colorado's ballot initiative that's coming, that is banning the hunting of mountain lions, bobcats, and lynx, who can't really hunt lynx, but specifically using dogs. They're going to ban it all, but they specifically reference dogs. And so I wanted to talk to someone who has the best knowledge when it comes to humans and dogs and our history with using them for hunting. David Howe is the man when it comes to this. So short, sharp conversation with David asking really tough questions about where we come from and where the dogs come from and whether or not hunting with dogs using a quote-unquote predator to go after a predator is something new and or something that we should be frowning upon. Have a listen. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is... Oh, does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a nonprofit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter.
So let me ask this question. Um, yeah. You have a dog of your own? I do. Hunting dog? Uh, he is bred to do that. I just don't hunt with him. But What kind of breed is it? He's a Norwegian elk hound and German shepherd mix. Oh, you serious? And a little bit of Malamute too. But his mama hunted elk. Oh. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I have a Brittany Boykin Spaniel right now that is deathly intent to staring at the door. Oh, yeah? Because he's heard the UPS driver uh. who tends to give him biscuits. That's the hunting that my dog does. He, he waits for the... The postal people to come and chases them up and down the fence. <laughs> well, David Howe, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's Robert, right? Oh, man. The only person who calls me Robert is my mother when she's really mad at me. Rob, Bob, Bobby? Robbie. Robbie. Yeah, Robbie. Robbie. <laughs> okay. Cool. I've been a Robbie all my life. I was named after a Bob. I have never been a... Um, We've never done, uh, I've never been a Robert, except for my mom, when obviously she's super mad and Robert Kroger, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so David, you have a very, very interesting background and I didn't want to sort of get out in front and, and mess it up. Sure. So uh, why don't you give us your background and uh, I think your background will then sort of shed light on why we have you on the podcast. Yeah, man. Um I guess first and foremost, I'm an anthropologist, means I study human culture and behavior, but uh, I specifically went to school for archaeology, which in the States, anthropology, or archaeology is part of anthropology, but uh, archaeology isn't... Where did you study, David? Uh, I studied at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and then studied at the University of Wyoming. Okay. Um, Are you from Tennessee? I'm from New York City originally, but uh, I grew up in Tennessee. Kinda cool. A dual life. Um, Are you in Tennessee right now? Actually in Wyoming right now. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm all over the place. But yeah, I spend the summers out here and I'm about to head back out east um, Monday. So, okay. Yeah. But um, I uh, studied, how do you explain this? Like archaeology, a lot of people think it's um, it's grave robbing or, you know, studying <laughs> pyramids or coins and stuff but archaeology really is just studying human behavior through time um and you do that by excavating artifacts and whatnot and um not only artifacts but bones and just what humans were eating a lot of hunting um and i study specifically like hunter gatherers which is why i went to wyoming um wyoming has some of the best preserved archaeology in the country um it's just laying on the landscape and um one thing that I specialized in was stone tools and human use of tools and fire and whatnot. And then it dawned on me one day that dogs are a legitimate human technology, same as stone tools or agriculture. And that got me into a a world of new things, which is where I am now. Yeah. So you've you've obviously got a degree in anthropology, archaeology. What are you doing now, like as a day job, as a like? What are you doing in Wyoming, for instance? Are you still in? Are you still on archaeological digs? Or? Uh, yes and no. I um, sometimes I'll work for a company. Sometimes I'll work for the university and do like I'm a contract archaeologist. Um, occasionally I do like 
big long field projects, but this year I've kind of just done freelance editing and uh, writing and stuff like that for other archaeology companies, which I've kind of enjoyed more. Um, and then for the big academic digs, like where we dug up the mammoth site or like the big uh, bison kill, which, you know, that I just kind of, they invite me to come out on when I just go hang out and film and <laughs> get to excavate. <laughs> and I, I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So t- tell me about the fascination with dogs, you know, and, and maybe this is, you know, the whole point of this podcast is to truly understand the role that dogs have had in hunting. And I'll set it up like this, and you may not be aware of it or not. But currently in Colorado, yeah. there's going to be a ballot initiative put forward by, um, I think the proponent's acronym is CATS. Colorado's, Coloradans Against Trophy Hunting something. Okay. And so they're going to put about an initiative forward. It's going through the title board process right now. In February, they'll have to start gathering 125,000 signatures. And what that initiative is going to look to do is it's going to look to ban hunting of mountain lions, bobcats, and lynx. You can't hunt lynx anyway right now. They're federally protected. And specifically, it'll, be, it'll outlaw all hunting of mountain lions and bobcats, but specifically they call out Hounds, the use of hounds from for hunting mountain lions and bobcats. And so when I came across you, I was like, man, I want to have this guy. I want to talk to this guy about like dogs and their use. And you know, because right now, and I'll say this, and maybe I'll start here. The use of dogs in hunting today is likely one of the most vilified practices there is. Yes. Because it's it's seen as unfair, David. Is it unfair? This is something that I, like a lot of, I mean, we can call it political, we can call it scientific. Like, I swing both ways on and kind of ethically, well, how would you put this, like sway on? Um, I would argue that dogs and hunting with dogs are, is one of the oldest if not sports, but oldest, like, sports isn't the word, um, you know, practices. It, it's something that yeah, humans have done. Yeah, it's a practice. It's not a sport. I wouldn't say it. Well, yeah, it, it's tough. It's not, at the end of the day, if, it may have morphed more recreational, uh, but I agree. It's a practice. Yeah, and it was a daily form of subsistence for people for upwards of 10,000 years. So it's something that, from many hunters I've spoken with, and like hunted with like you i've never hunted with dogs but i've been with people who have done that um it is like the be- the most in tune and the most like in sync with your dog a human can be is when you're hunting you know animals with with a dog uh and i've never done that and i'd love to try it um cuz especially like my dog who's bred for it uh i would love that and like i i think the practice should be you know, still allowed, especially when it's done ethically. And like when you have the color population of, say, cougars or mountain lions, um, the most efficient way to do that is to have another predator with you that can stuff them out and find them. Um, and it, it just makes sense to me. Um, but at the same time, I can completely see, especially having been born in New York City where you just don't hunt, like <laughs> why you would see it as completely like a heinous thing to do. Um, 
And having moved out to Tennessee and moving out west, being around guns, being around hunting, completely changed my perspective on it. Um, and you know, especially hanging out with people who hunt and hunt with dogs and stuff. Like they're not, they're not evil people. They're just like me and you. Uh, and they, they really enjoy the. I I don't want to like again not sport, but the, the aspect of what what it entails and how hunting with a dog is just so unique and ancient. You know. Well, I think it is tapping into that almost ancient ancient relationship that you have, you know, you've studied so intensely. Uh-huh. I think that that's it. Like, there is no better way, no better feeling to see a dog that is with you, in tune with you, doing the thing that it was bred to do. Right. It's not like you're forcing the animal to do it. The animal wants to do it. Uh-huh. And watch it perform. And watch it achieve what's it what it's built for right and yeah i I imagine like when my dog gets his I have a little flirt pole thing with him when he catches that he's amped and he parades it around the house like if you just fetch i mean fetch is just stimulating a hunting instinct um search for my dog too same thing like I, I feel like I am denying part of his like being not hunting with him. Uh, I just haven't had the opportunity, nor have I trained him to do that. Uh, but at the same time, like my dog is bred to hunt elk and moose, and he can track, and I've taught him how to like sniff things around the house. It just seems like a disservice to have him trapped in a suburban house, um, you know, in a room all day waiting to like for me to let him outside and maybe go on a walk. Um, but when we're out here in Wyoming and he can run around the woods, he is a different animal, <laughs> and. One thing I, I will say too is like when, when I'm out in the woods, I might see a deer and he doesn't see it yet, but there's sometimes where I won't see it and I can tell that he smells something on the, in the wind and he'll perk his head up and look around and that puts me on alert that, mm-hmm. you know, cause I, especially out here in Wyoming, are there bears, are there mountain lions? Like I, he's my alarm system for that. And I love that. Yeah. David, can you express sort of theologically or maybe in an an anthropological viewpoint why people think it's unfair to use dogs to chase wildlife? I think a lot of people either think that it's not cheating. Um, I would have thought, like, I guess a while ago that, you know, it takes... How would I phrase this? Like, I know it's a lot of work now. I'm saying this as a person who thought this before. Yeah. Um, who, you know, the dogs just go find it and then you corner it and shoot it kind of thing. Or uh, my other thought too was that the dogs just like rip it to shreds in a violent, you know, death. Um, and uh, I know that is the case with some hunters, especially with bear hunters. Um, some bear hunters just, I'm sorry, raccoon hunters. Some people hunt the yeah. bear, just come up, tree the bear, shoot it themselves. Um, but that seems to be like a cheat code for people that seems not ethical. And then also just personally, I think like when a, a cat is treed and it's hissing and it's screaming, uh, and it's like doing that, you know, it's all rude up. It's scared. And I, I feel weird that the animal dies so frightened. Um, but again, that's what animals do. Like dogs are meant to hunt and like, it's just how things are, predated i guess is the word or how they're hunted and uh 
if it doesn't die by a human shooting it, it's going to die, you know, of some illness and infection. Its legs are going to give out and it's going to starve. So, mm -hmm. like, I don't think a lot of people think of it that way. David, do you think that you, I'm interested to hear your viewpoint here. You, you know, a mountain lion in a tree, some of them, you know, do hiss. They're, they're probably going to hiss more when they're on the ground and yeah. their dog is baying it. In a tree, they seem pretty relaxed based on what I've seen. Yeah. Do you, when the mountain lion is hissing and snarling and swiping, bayed in a, in a corner on the ground, do we, do we truly think that it is scared or is that just an anthropomorphic, like, us putting on a, a, a uh, human connotation of emotion onto that animal? That's a good point. Um, I do know my dog gets scared of gunshots and fireworks. Um, mm. and like he'll True. physically tremble and things like True. that. I haven't been around a mountain lion to see what its emotions are, <laughs> but, um, I do know there's one video of these hounds that trapped a, a mountain lion in a cave and it was hissing. Um, and yeah, you're right. I might've been putting my, like anthropomorphizing it's, it's feeling at the moment, but obviously it's heart rate's accelerated. It's, it's feeling threatened. Um, and if you're surrounded by a five what it thinks are wolves, it might be a little frightening, but, um, yeah, scared might not be the best word. Uh, yeah. but either way, it's, it's natural. It's not like mm -hmm. you're, it's natural. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So David, let me, I think what the most interesting thing that I want to hear from you is I want to hear about the history mm -hmm. of dogs, the history of dogs in past society and almost like that it's not something, it's not something new that's being used today for the first time. It's an ancient practice. Uh -huh. Dogs and humans. I mean, there's so much I could go on with, but I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> Meet in uh, Siberia, um, and then there's wolves all over Eurasia. But where dogs come into existence is Siberia. Um, essentially. And, and we think they're a direct lineage of wolves, right? Do we think it's a domestication of a wolf? There are new studies out every week that will say it's a different species of wolf kind of thing, but um, a species is just a word we attribute to something, and at the end of the day, a dog is a domestic version of some kind of wolf. Whether it's the modern okay. wolf that exists today or something that went extinct, it's a wolf, and they can all interbreed. Okay. Um, so that's, that's the, the basic answer there. Um, but yeah, so you, you humans get to Eurasia, they're probably watching wolves hunt to see how they hunt the new different fauna that's up there. Um, and humans are monogamous for the most part, uh, so are wolves and, or at least they raise their, their young that way. Humans do. We have similar social systems. We, um, you know, have language, body language, we alloparent, meaning that other people take care of um, children too. It's not just the, the human adults. The parents take care of the offspring. It's usually shared. Um, wolves do the same. So we all notice these kind of things. And when we get stuck in that glaciated environment in Siberia, there is a need for essentially, to boil it down, like wolves have to adapt to life among invasive fire-wielding apes or not and they the wolves that exist today that are dogs are the ones that survived because they adapted to life among humans either not agreeing that wouldn't be the right word sample from warpising again but 
just figuring out that commensally hunting together nets you more calories than you lose. Um, And that just seems to have stayed. And a wolf, or uh, sorry, a dog, in my definition, is a wolf adapted to life among homo sapiens. So whether that is a dog scavenging trash at a dump in Mexico City, it's your dog you're hunting with, it's a, it's a dog that has, um, you know, fully adapted to the presence of humans in, on the earth. Yeah. So we think it started as a commensurate relationship. Like, hey, wolves are going to be next to humans. You're not really domesticating the wolves at that point. It's more like we work together sort of symbiotically to take prey down. You're going to, you know, share some prey. We're going to take some prey. Absolutely. And I would think that dogs scavenging human kills or human camps would be the most likely scenario. And they just kind of skulked around and found scraps or whatnot. Because again, you really need those calories when you're in high latitudes. But after a while, like if wolves started following humans on a hunt and, you know, we killed something or the animal took off, that wolf's instinct's going to kick in, it's going to chase it. And then we probably realized after a while, like, okay kill the ones that are going to bite you when you go up to the carcass and the ones that are a little scared of you run away from the deer or the antelope, whatever you're hunting caribou. Um, and you go up and start butchering it, you feed them a little bit and they'll come back and they'll help you next time. And just multiply okay. that by 30,000 years and you got a dog. Yeah. So how long yeah. ago did we think this started? Genetically, uh, the closest date we have is about 20,000 years ago. Is that where we first just, we start seeing like what we would know as a dog species? Um, but and what I, does that look like? What does that look like, David? Like twenty thousand years, we start seeing a dog species. The dog samples that we find at that time, um, and the genetic testing, like we start seeing like I guess if you were to put it on a a graph, it would start to like, you know, ding that like we you have a dog. Um, but that's, that's compared to modern dog populations, but that's just, you know, seeing what a dog in relation to a modern dog looks like. But in terms of a domestic wolf, it could be up to 30, 40, 50,000 years before, or not just 20,000 years ago, because again, evolution doesn't work overnight. So you would like those wolves were probably following humans around for a good 30, 40,000 years before we start systematically breeding them to look like dogs, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the markers that you're seeing, the, the thing that's spiking, um, are you, is it morphological changes, genetic changes, or both? Uh, it's both. And that's a, a great question, too, because a dog skull and a wolf skull are the same species, but they look different. Um, a dog's face is a lot more scrunched in. The head case is smaller, and its teeth are more crowded. But it's still the same, like genetically the same species. Uh, it's a wolf, but that those skeletons. So what, like, hold on, let me ask this question: You're saying genetically a dog is the same as a wolf? No. So, like anything in the genus Canis, which would be Canis lupus is a wolf, Canis lupus familiaris is a dog, it's a subspecies of the wolf. Um, and then, sorry, I should say subspecies, not species, but... So my domestic dog is Canis lupus familiaris. Yes. Which it's not be... Canis familiaris. There's different... You know, everyone has their own way of classifying things. But again, uh, 
I can't describe it other than species being a spectrum where yeah. it's like how much more coyote is that coyote from that one? Um, yeah, splitters but, or lumpers, right? There you go. Okay, so you know the stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I've got, I, you don't know my background. I have a PhD in, in biology and, and resource okay. and restoration ecology and whatnot. Yeah. I had no idea. So if you know lumpers <laughs> and splitters, you know where I'm getting at then. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, awesome, by the way. Um, wolves, coyotes, dogs, dingoes. Dingoes are just domestic dogs that rewilded. And then some jackals can all interbreed. They're in the same genus and they can make viable offspring. So to me, that means they're a, the same species. But like a coyote is kind of just a natural dog. Um, that, you know, it's smaller than a wolf. It does its own thing. It still lives in packs in a sense. Like it, it's an interesting little creature. Um, but I would say that, yeah, dogs are a like the same species, but I would branch them into a subspecies of, of wolf. Um, but then people want to take different dog breeds and make them their own subspecies, but that gets too into the weeds. And Sure, sure. Um, yeah. I hope that answers your question. So 20,000 years ago, you, we think morphologically and genetically, we start seeing, or maybe not genetically, morphologically, we start seeing changes between what was wolf that is now dog. Um, yeah. So... You start seeing about this time, uh, and since yeah, you, you know this well then, evolution doesn't work like it does in you know, Pokemon or in movies and things like that. Like It doesn't happen overnight. So with that tooth crowding and that smaller brain case that you see in dog skeletons, that doesn't just appear overnight in the archaeological record. So you might find a dog that's in between that and a wolf, or you might find a hybrid, or you might just find a you know, something that looks more like a, a German Shepherd than it does a, a smaller Tingo-like hey. dog. So looking at the, the archaeological evidence, it's hard to say because there's all sorts of variation in between dog and wolf that you could find. Uh, so genetically is why my colleague Angela Perry uses that as a kind of a solid marker for we know by 20,000 years ago dogs exist, but there's definitely 33,000-year-old dog remains in Siberia and some in um, Belgium as well, that look pretty similar to dogs set about 30,000 years ago. So I have no doubt it's, it's longer than that. What does the archaeological record show, and maybe this is more in the um, cave paintings, <clears throat> hieroglyphics of the history of dogs and humans together? Because I guess you can, uh, you're the, more of an expert here than I am, how do we show, how can we tell in the historical record this relationship between dog and human? Yeah. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the art too, because weirdly in all of that, like the famous cave art in Spain and France and Italy, there is no, there's wolves, or I'm sorry, there's bears, there's lions, there's hyenas. Um, there's even, uh, what's the other one? There's another type of predator in there sometimes too. But there's no wolves in any of those paintings for some reason. So I also chalk that up to being there's also no humans. Because um, I would have thought, you know, painting humans might scare the prey away. Painting wolves might scare the prey away. But there's lions, yeah. there's bears, there's hyenas. So There's no humans like human hunters in those, in those, on those paintings? Not in the big 
like an elaborate famous ones. Um, but by those are like 30,000 years old, 29,000, 33,000 years old, Lascaux and Chauvet. But around 10,000 years ago, you start seeing dogs or painted like things in paintings. So there's one in Spain, uh, or sorry, one in France, it's in Fontagam, several in Italy. And then uh, there's the rock art they found in Arabia, about 10,000 years old, that has dogs on leashes and like a hunter with a bow and arrow. And that is the first like unequivocal evidence of, and they're even canine dogs too. They have the little stripe down their side. Uh, humans hunting What do you mean canine dogs with a stripe down their sides? Uh, canine, as in like Canaanite, uh, they are... It's kind of like a dingo-looking dog, but it has a big white stripe down its, like, from its neck down to its paw. Um, and, like, it's a distinctive-looking dog. And the cave art, or the rock art, sorry, that shows them, like, 10,000 years old still shows that same stripe on them. Like, you can see yeah. it in the rock art. It's pretty cool. Um, but that's, Is there such a dog species like that today? Yeah. It's, um, I think it's the national dog of uh, Israel. Uh, it's, um, oh, really? It's like from there. Yeah. And um, it's C-A-N-A-N dog, I think we spell it. But uh, anyone wants to look that up. But they, um, that's the oldest cave painting of humans and dogs together. But there is a burial about 14,000 years old in Germany that is a dog uh, and two people buried together. Um, mm-hmm. And some people argue that that is a wolf. It's not a dog yet genetically. But... Kind of gets into that. Clearly, was domesticated enough. Maybe we would think to be buried with its owners or with the warriors or mm-hmm. whatnot. Exactly my my take on it too. It's the first time that you use clearly intentional burial or interring these two animals together, uh, and that is pretty significant to me. Whether it's a mm-hmm. wolf or a dog or not, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is. It is. Based on the archaeological record, this idea of humans and dogs working together is not new. No, not, not by a, a long shot. It's very, very old. Um, and I would even argue, too, that even, let's say, if dogs are only 20,000 years old genetically, we want to go 30, 40, 50,000 years ago. And let's say wolves are hunting or uh, scavenging around human camps, they're going to scare away other predators and things too. So, yep, they're kind of marking their territory around human territory. So, you know, or at least barking and scaring them off. So, there's that relationship starting even without even like having to work together yet. And then once dogs are pretty established about 20,000 years ago, Clearly, we're hunting, clearly. And you can see evidence of dog trading genetically across the old world and things. And uh, Yeah. So, guarding, for sure. Hunting, probably second, I would say, if not first. Yeah. I wonder what your opinion is on this. I've got mine. I don't want to bias yours. Yeah. Why do you think there's such a... I need to choose my words carefully here. Um, why do you think there's such a strongly divided camp when it comes to wolves? Yeah. 
my, I don't know what word to give this answer. My anthropological answer would be that wolves are the most similar animal to us besides, you know, apes and monkeys. So there's this like, uh, reverence for them. There's a fear of them. There is a healthy respect for them. And we look at them as like, especially in like indigenous tradition, they're a noble animal in European tradition. They're seen as like a villain. Um, and then, but in most of the world, they're seen as a respected, revered animal. Uh, we share kinship with them. So therefore hunting them bad. And I think might be kind of where it comes from. And I remember as a kid, I was what, probably eight. I remember when Bush was in office, but I saw on TV that they were drilling for oil in Alaska and it was displacing wolves and I got all amped about it and wrote George Bush a letter, George W. Bush, <laughs> wow. telling him, yeah, I was like eight or nine. My teacher like encouraged it and like, you know, don't kill the wolves or like that. And like, uh, I got a nice signed picture of George Bush from back from it with saying like, thanks for writing. And, uh, like, I just as a kid, like, I just knew, like, you know, don't hurt wolves kind of thing like that. And as an adult now, though, who has friends in Colorado and has been out here out west, and I know there's wolves out here, like, they do statistically don't hunt livestock as much as some people say they do, I believe is the leading thing. Mm -hmm. But they still do. And also, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen videos of domestic dogs getting, like, torn up by wolves and things like that that live out there, but... I would put that more on the owner for leaving their dog out there all night uh, than the wolves doing it, because that's just what they do. But I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is I understand there is a healthy fear of these wolves might, you know, attack us. They might attack our livestock. They might mess with our animals. Um, and I get why you would want to ban their reintroduction. Um, but that would be on my, that end of that. But on the other end of that, it's just like wolves are majestic and almost went extinct or were threatened or feared or whatever um i don't think they almost went extinct that's probably too far to say but easier to get that like i can see where people are hesitant to not reintroduce them and to hunt them yeah. um, but i also completely see why you would want them not reintroduced mm -hmm. um, yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting my um even what you just what you said earlier in the podcast about like where the domestic dog came from, our interaction with wolves in the Siberian landscape 30, 40, 50,000 years ago. From my perspective, I think the reason why we have such a, a divided interaction or relationship with wolves is, have you ever, and this may be a good book for you, have you ever read David Guaman's Monster of God? No, I've never heard of it. Type it in right now. Q-U-A-M-M-E-N, I believe is his name, Monster of God. It's a book about the, the alpha predators of this world. I use it all the time. Everyone listening to this podcast hears me say, talk about it. It's such an amazing book because it talks about okay. Siberian tigers, saltwater crocodiles, the brown bears of the Carpathian Mountains in Romania. It talks about wolves. And the way that they couch it is that wolves and humans are, are alpha predators. Uh -huh. And so instinctually there is a competitiveness between alpha predators and so on one side of the divide on one side of the relationship there is this competitiveness that we have been in battle essentially as alpha predators for 50,000 years 60,000 years and so when you see a wolf 
you see it as a competition, a sort of a competitor. You can add in different layers of agriculture and economies and all those kinds of things today that amplifies that. Okay. So that's the, the, the sort of, we don't like wolves side of the equation. The people who love wolves side of the equation are the people who can see themselves in wolves. They can see the intelligence. They can see all this, the, the social structures that you mentioned that are very akin to a human structure. And then you sort of, and then taking what you said, layer on top of this, of that, the, the, the buried genetically tribal relationship that we've had with wolves slash domestic dogs for the last 50 years, 50, 50,000 years, <laughs> creates this other side of the coin, which is we love. Right. And we, we don't want to harm them and we don't want to interact with, you know, let's, we want the interaction. We don't want anyone to, to, to hunt them or kill them. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really good point. Like, yeah, that's kind of reflected uh, religiously and culturally, too, around the world. Like, it's either, it's like reverence, but there's also healthy fear. Um, and, yeah, I didn't really think about the competition of them, too. But I guess Little Red Riding Hood might be more on the competition end of it than, mm. than fear, you know? But um, Fenrir in Norse mythology, like he's a wolf that when the world ends, will like his sons swallow the sun and the moon. So like it's a pretty healthy respect and fear, I guess. But yeah, that is a, I'm going to have to get that book. I'd never heard of that. It's a brilliant book, dude. You'll absolutely devour it. Okay. Because it, it goes into things like, I'll give you a little, this is a little off topic, but saltwater crocodiles talks about it in India and Sri Lanka. And then it talks about the Northern Territory of Australia. And in, North, in Australia, obviously you have hundreds of different Aboriginal tribes. Uh. And those Aboriginal tribes have different deities and different things that they worship. And some of them are tied in with specific wildlife. And so you have certain Aboriginal tribes that revere and have the deity of the saltwater crocodile. And then you have other tribes that they describe in the book that are like the manta ray is their deity. The people that have the deity of the manta ray get smacked and taken by saltwater crocodiles all the time in the mm. Northern Territory, eaten. The saltwater crocodile tribes that revere the, and worship saltwater crocodiles never get eaten by saltwater. Oh. So you're like, wow, what, what, what's going on there? Is it like a true spiritual like connection like they know? Or is it just because you understand them more, you understand their behaviors, you understand their habitats, and you avoid places that they possibly would be in? I don't know. Right. But it's very strange to see that correlation. The, your environment always shapes your culture in a way, yeah. So the ones that eat humans less obviously would probably revere them a little more or something. Something um, like that. Yeah, that is neat. I meant to ask, are you, you're a wildlife biologist? I know your audience has probably heard this a bunch, but. Yeah, so I got a PhD in, in biology, but wetland ecology is sort of my foundational base. I've, I've, I've loved wetlands and swamps since I was 16 years old. Okay. Studied university in South Africa, did an honors in South Africa, master's in South Africa, PhD here in the States, postdoc here in the States. I was a professor in the wildlife fisheries department at Mississippi State University for six years. Um, 
And then in that time, I almost, you know, morphed from being a wetland ecologist, keeping those fundamental principles to being a restoration ecologist. So looking at landscapes, how can you modify landscapes, manage landscapes that are specifically tied in with humans? So wildlife management, hunting, um, agriculture, water quality improvement. And how do you, how do you create them? How do you manage them to benefit both humans and the environment? Yeah. So are you a bird hunter primarily or do you, are you a... Uh, you know, my wife says if I, if I, if there was a season for, this sounds really bad, but this is what my wife says <laughs> and she's a horror writer. So you have to, you know, she sure. writes horror. If there was a season for babies, Robbie would be hunting babies. Fair. So <laughs> I like, I like hunting everything. If there's something to hunt, I'll hunt it. Um, and um, I've never been on a dog hunt like you. I've never yeah. been with someone who has a pack of hounds and, you know, chases a bear or chases a mountain lion. Uh, oh, sorry. I, do, I lie. I have been squirrel hunting. Okay. I've been squirrel hunting with feists. And it's fantastic hunting. It's fantastic seeing the dog work. It's, you know, to me, that's it. Like, you know, there's a vilification around dogs and being used to chase game. But they've done it for based on what you just talked about, tens of thousands of years. They've been working with hunters for tens of thousands of years. It's not yeah. something new. And it's not something that you're essentially forcing on the animal itself. Yeah. Uh, the videos I've seen of it too, like there's, um, they're chasing a mountain lion somewhere in the snow. And there, there's even like a puppy like trailing behind like the huge pack of dogs, and it's it's excited to be there doing what it's doing, mm -hmm. and it's like learning. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's not like something you force on the dog. Um, I just found that interesting. Yeah, and when you speak to houndsmen, we've got a big lion houndsman documentary right now in the film festival circuit called Lionheart, and to them, it's it's it the the cat in the tree and killing the cat in the tree is the last thing on the ladder. It's the, it's the dog. It's building the dog. It's building the pack. It's creating your own pack. It's the relationships with the individual dogs, watching them work. How do they work? How do they, what are they teaching you about the environment? What are they teaching you about the animal? Right. Like I say, the, the, the title, a lion houndsman, is one that you just don't get. You earn it. Never heard that. I like that. Yeah, you earn yeah. it because you're, you're 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 putting everything every day every waking moment into those dogs and that itself too is a it probably extremely ancient tradition too like i my big thing recently is talk about this like when agriculture comes around and we start focusing more on you know there's new jobs we'll have to do like farming someone has to make the tools someone has to trade someone has to build walls someone has to you know build houses uh, you're not moving and hunting, all, gathering all day. Somebody probably specifically sat and trained, like there was a kennel master or there was a, you know, someone who specifically bred hunting dogs or ran the dog kennel. And that is start where you start to see like the variation in dog breeds starting to come out. Um, it really booms in like the Victorian era, but back then there was still a big change from wolf to a dog. Um, and yeah, I would imagine a primary driving force of that kennel master was to breed excellent hunting dogs. Um, hey. And then the hunters themselves, like you said, like, put a, like you said, a hound, houndsman. Um, houndsman, yep. 
Yeah. And like, obviously in, in old Britain, there's, that's quite a culture, uh, you know, fox hunting and all that with, with dogs and yeah, it's, um, and then war dogs too. That's a, that's another thing, but I think we kind of try to fail. What are war dogs? Um, like a dog that just fights with people and like a, like a soldier that, you know, attacks another group or a guard dog. Um, Rome had war dogs. Greece had war dogs. Alexander the Great had several. Um, the Spanish certainly had a bunch. They brought them here. Uh, it's like it's a it's a tradition for sure. Like a dog that's part of the. They usually just a general or a captain's like actual animals that protect him in the battlefield. But there are definitely <laughs> dogs, especially when the Spanish got here, he used them to check people down and do things like that. Um, Cool. And uh, Alexander the Great, for sure. The Molossian Hound, I believe, is what the dog is called. It's okay. a big mastiff-looking thing, but they were definitely war dogs. But the, the Spanish ones had armor, which was kind of cool. Nice. Yeah. I mean, used for not great reasons, but they had armor. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, of course, yeah. of course. Well, David, man, I just wanted to... Well, number one, thank you for coming on. Um, I really wanted to just... Sort of just give a little bit of a history lesson, man. And yeah. I didn't know the I didn't know the the basis of you know where dogs came from. You hear it all the time, you know, someone saying you know the meme where it's a wolf and a chihuahua and say, look at what humans have done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this was you. <laughs> this was you one day, you know, ten thousand, twenty thousand years ago. Yeah. Um. No, thanks for having me. I I I have a thing on my instagram about this like i did this in the stories a while back i'll try to keep this brief um talking about wolves their dogs and hunting and, and this and it caused a huge rift in my following and i lost like several hundred followers that day i think a close to why thousand. because they didn't they didn't feel like that dogs should be hunting that would be the i think the major source but i think other people just followed me for the dog information and the memes they didn't want to see an ethical debate about hunting cougars um and I got so much hate for it, but I was like, this is the definition of ethnocynology is like the wolves or humans and dogs hunting together. So like, this is a fact you, you cannot ignore it. And I got a lot more followers uh, after that too, that were like, you know, my friend had sent me this and thank you for showing this perspective. Cause I, again, I see it both ways. And I think if you can't see it both ways, like there's. That was our post, right? Yeah. I think I pushed it saying, thank you for. I did something. I can't remember how we connected, but it was, I think it was tied to that. Was it? Okay. I'll have to look back. But yeah, I, I, I got several, since then I was on Meat Eater, um, then like, you know, all sorts of stuff. Like it is, or Bear Grease, not Meat Eater, but um, yeah, it just, it, it's an important topic and I think people don't want to talk about it or even think about it, but I think it's important to think about. Well, and thing, let me, I didn't ask this question. Do you hunt yourself? I have hunted before. Yeah. Okay. Pronghorn. But you're not deer. like a diehard kind of like I'm hunting all the time kind of guy. If I lived in one spot, because I don't right now, um, and <laughs> like I just bought another gun the other day, like I, I would. I just don't. I live travel in like a RV thing, so I just can't keep the meat in my freezer. But I, I would if I could. Yeah. Is this studio that you're recording out of in your RV? This is actually at my friend's house, where it's a stop on my usual trips. Um, okay. We record stuff together. Yeah. <laughs> But well, David, I, I really appreciate you, man. Um, and I, yeah, you're right. There is, as I said, and I say it all the time, there is no greater vilified 
practice in hunting that is chasing predators with hounds. Really? Chasing predators with a predator. So uh, I appreciate you giving us the background, the history, man. And um, yeah, please feel free to tag us and stuff and interact with us and we'll keep following you. And um, yeah, anytime you get into a debate around, you know, hunting and dogs, please pull us in, man. Yeah, to probably tackle some issues. Sure. I'd love to get you on mine at some point um, to talk about this. 100%. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, we can talk about Lionheart. That's, I'll tell you what, man, it's. We built a documentary. I've spent a lot of money on it, uh, but we built it specifically for non-hunters. Okay. And it's a 40-minute long documentary and really takes you along this arc of a lion hunt from morning to finish and explains what they're doing, why they're doing it, the reasons for hunting, the research tied to it. But then it's all based with, like, you know, all around the dog. Yeah. So. I, uh. I'll definitely share that when it comes out. So let me know. Will do. Will do. Thank well, you, man. David. Yeah, thank good you. Good luck on your trips, man. <laughs> Thanks. Guess, uh, good luck to you hunting. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.